0: I was well, no just like, leaving the theater.
1: I this Cadillac this convertible 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior.
2: and I drove it up here. And, and I started, started to
1: do some thinking. I on the freeway, and I'm having I a really, really good time. Flat black, big spliffs and cruising Saturday too. On the freeway. A good freeway. I
3: am I told a total you. friendly, and voice is
4: absolutely right. I am Teddy,
3: Beavis and
5: and
4: I will cut Blake. the room. Henry, yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your um uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I I find pretty hard to believe. Uh-
7: Good morning, mutineers. Good morning, labor and lovers. Yasalavendi.
8: piece of land, a little piece of land that the Chicano community of Logan Heights wanted to make into a park. A park where all the chavalitos could come and play in so they wouldn't have to play in the street and get run over by a car. A park where all the viejitos could come in the tarde and just sit down and watch the sun go down. A park could come and just get together on a Sunday afternoon and celebrate the spirit of life itself. But the city of San Diego said, chale, we're going to make a highway patrol substation here. So on April the 22nd, 1970, La Raza of Logan Heights and other Chicano communities got together, and they walked on the land, and they took it over with their picks and their shovels, and they began to build their own park. And today, almost 20 years later, that little piece of land under the Coronado Bridge in San Diego is known to people everywhere as Chicano Park. It began in 1970
9: under the Coronado Bridge and Mi Barrio. We shall continue to live, my brother. We shall continue to fight, my friend. We shall continue to live, my brother. We shall continue to fight.
7: Good morning to you. Nice to have you. This is the B and you're listening to Labor and Love radio on mutiny radio and mutinyradio.fM. My name is Bill Morgan aka the B and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. a show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work. You're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And what have we got today? Well, we've got a full platter of labor stuff. Great Labor Songs, an article by Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine and Prophets of Rage. Also, the Bruce Springsteen Band. Dying for debt relief, why are New York City taxi drivers on a hunger strike? What is China doing about the overemphasis on homework and strict academics in its school system? The answer will surprise you. Labor history in two minutes, one of our usual features on this day in labor history. What happened today in labor history? What happened with the Yahtzee strike? And the, with the Yahtzee strike, there's also a connection to the tragic killing of a met one of the members of the film crew of a movie called Rust how does the union figure into that the John Deere strike for the 10 billion dollars it gave shareholders John Deere could have given each worker 142000 dollars happy strike tober Let's restore the legal right to strike. Well, you're wondering, well, don't we have the legal right to strike? Sure we do, we don't have the legal right to get our jobs back after the strike is over. Further news on the Rust tragedy. What happened there and what's the union connection? Radio labor, our world labor connection. Every week we tell you about what's happening all over the world. And today, the two Francesca's, Fiorentini and Ramsey, plus a whole lot more. El Tecolote, the El Tecolote corner. What's happening here in the mission? What? Christian missionary family kicking people out of their house? We'll see about that, huh? Welcome then to Labor and Love Radio, and we're going to start out with our Radio Labor feature, the Radio Labor World Report.
3: This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor.
10: This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, October 22nd, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a general strike crossed the United States, fighting the extradition of Julian Assange in the name of press freedom. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. In the United States, thousands of workers all across the country are on strike. They are fed up with low pay and horrible working conditions. Employers are trying to say it's all about a labor shortage. But that's not true, according to Robert Reich. Mr. Reich is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a former Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. He
11: says what's happening in the United States is a general strike. For the first time in years, workers have enough bargaining leverage to demand better working conditions and higher wages and are refusing to work until they get them. Here's where that leverage comes from. After a year and a half of pandemic, consumers have pent up demand for all sorts of goods and services, but employers are finding it hard to fill positions to meet that demand. The most recent jobs report showed the number of job openings at a record high. The share of people working or looking for work has dropped to a near record low 61.6%. In August, 4.3 million Americans quit their jobs, the highest quit rate since 2000. Now, Republicans have been claiming for months that people aren't getting back to work because of federal unemployment benefits.
12: And the government is using your taxpayer dollars, as I said, to incentivize laziness.
11: Rubbish! The number of people working, or looking for work, dropped in September, after the extra benefits ran out on Labor Day. The reluctance of people to work doesn't have anything to do with unemployment benefits. It has everything to do with workers being fed up. Some have retired early. Others have found ways to make ends meet other than a job they hate. Many just don't want to return to back-breaking or mind-numbing low-wage jobs. In the wake of so much hardship, illness, and death, people's priorities have shifted. Now, the media and most economists measure the economy's success by the number of jobs it creates, while ignoring the quality of those jobs. Just look at the media coverage of the September jobs report. The New York Times emphasized weak jobs growth. For CNN, it was, quote, another disappointment. But when I was Secretary of Labor, I met with working people all over the country who complained that their jobs Paid too little and had few benefits or were unsafe or required unwieldy hours. Many said their employers treated them badly. With a pandemic, it's even worse. That's why in addition to all the people who aren't returning to work, we're also seeing dozens of organized strikes around the country. 10,000 John Deere workers, 1,400 Kellogg workers, over 1,000 Alabama coal miners, and thousands of others. Not to mention the unauthorized strikes and walkouts since the pandemic began, like the mostly black sanitation workers in Pittsburgh, or the Amazon workers in Staten Island. In order to lure workers back, employers are now raising wages and offering other benefits and incentives. Average earnings rose 19 cents an hour in September and are up more than a dollar an hour over the last year. But clearly, that's not enough to get workers back. Corporate America is trying to frame this as a labor shortage. But what's really happening is more accurately described as a living wage shortage, a hazard pay shortage, a child care shortage, a paid sick leave shortage, and a health care shortage. Unless these shortages are rectified, this unofficial general strike will continue.
10: A coalition of 25 press freedom and human rights groups have called on the U.S. government to drop its charges against Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. They say the demand is made even more relevant now because of the news that the CIA plotted to kidnap and possibly assassinate Mr. Assange. In a letter to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, the groups say the prosecution of the Australian journalist is a threat to press freedom around the globe. Mr. Assange is accused by the U.S. of aiding the leaking of information by Chelsea Manning about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He is currently imprisoned in London's maximum security Belmarsh prison. In January, a British court ruled that he could not be extradited to the United States because of his mental condition and that the U.S. could not guarantee he could be stopped from committing suicide. In August, a court ruled that the U.S. could appeal the decision to keep Mr. Assange in the U.K. Just before the first court ruling that kept the journalist in the country, I talked to Tim Dawson, who attended the extradition hearings on behalf of the National Union of Journalists, U.K. and Ireland, and the International Federation of Journalists. I began my conversation with Mr. Dawson by asking him why the extradition of Julian Assange is an issue for journalists.
13: Because the successful prosecution of Julian Assange would have the effect of criminalizing journalism. Let me explain why that is. To, to understand this, you need to look at the what's known as the second superseding indictment of Julian Assange. So this is where the United States sets out the terms on which it wishes to prosecute Mr. Assange. These are all in the U.S. Espionage Act of 1917, which is a very vague and, and quite a notorious piece of legislation for persecuting progressives and working-class organisers and trade unionists. And within the terms of this act, it defines what it seeks to prosecute Assange for, which is effectively nurturing a contact who he hopes to obtain information from and helping that contact to locate information that he thinks might be of use, and providing advice on how he might sidestep the security of the computer network from which he's going to take that information. Now, those actions are ones that thousands of investigative journalists will have performed many, many times. They are the actions of somebody locating and coaching a source, somebody who has recognized illegality or immorality within an organization that they're working for and helping them to provide that information for journalistic purposes. So in a way, whether you think Julian Assange is a journalist or an activist or, or, or whatever, doesn't really matter because it's the actions that he took which are journalistic for which the U.S. is trying to prosecute him. And if they are successful, it will mean that anybody engaging in that kind of work with classified material would be at risk of prosecution by the U.S., which is a, frankly, terrifying prospect.
10: I have heard it said that Mr. Assange used his journalistic expertise to interfere in a U.S. election and so deserves to be punished. How do you respond to this?
13: Well, so so this relates to the leak of emails within the Democratic National Committee in 2016. That event plays no part in the attempt to prosecute Assange whatsoever. So nothing relating to that leak and how that happened is mentioned in any of the U.S. case. Um, I myself wonder about how that leak happened and why it came out as it did. Um, I understand why some might think that even if this isn't what Assange is charged for, maybe he deserves it. But I suppose fundamentally I believe in the rule of law and um, if criminal acts somehow led to those leaks or were involved in those leaks coming to light, then let the relevant authorities place those charges in front of a court and let's hear the evidence.
10: Here with his report
1: about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top story section included links to coverage of the massive general strike in Korea that saw 500,000 workers march through the streets of Seoul. And of course, we also collected dozens of stories about the solidarity protests held across Europe last Friday and on Saturday as a challenge to the fascists who organized the attack on the CGIL headquarters in Rome. Also, top stories this week were the police violence in Eswatini, directed at workers and union officials. More on the struggle to stop the privatization of Puerto Rico's electricity system. And the surge in union activity across the United States of America this month that many are calling Tober. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found coverage of what unions in the Caribbean are doing to ensure that women can reach leadership positions within them. The nurses, all women, who are refusing to treat Eswatini police officers after demonstrators, including trade unionists, were shot by security forces this week. The workers attacked by the police had been attempting to present a petition to the government demanding an end to the casualization of their jobs. And we carried the last installment of BWI's Women Speak series, an interview with a woman worker and trade union activist in Mauritius. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week included the reaction of British doctors to the requirement that they meet face-to-face with any patient requesting it, regardless of clinical need, calls from unions across Africa, the Pacific, and Asia for a total ban on asbestos, and lots and lots and lots of debates about mandatory vaccination policies within and between unions and between unions and governments and employers. Our photo of the week is of workers in Barcelona, Spain, who, like union members across Europe, rallied last week to show their solidarity with CGIL, the Italian union whose headquarters was attacked by fascists last week. LaborStart hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight an urgent appeal for online solidarity with the Iranian workers who are taking on a viciously repressive government in an effort to win not just improved working conditions, but recognition for their union. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. It takes only seconds to send a message that could help change workers' lives for the better. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labour.
10: Now here is Billy Bragg with an old wartime Woody Guthrie song, All You Fascists Bound to Lose. That's it. International labor news you can use. You can listen to our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Balanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
14: community I've called home for 30 years is a rural community that's known fire and flood and it's mostly clustered around a bay now the bay used to run a little bit further south but it's silted up pretty much and most of it's pasture land so running along the south side of it is a levee with a road on it and on the south side of the levee road is the home of a family called Love and every once in a while the the water tries to reclaim that part of the bay and runs over the levee and floods and even though over the years the Love family has put their house up on posts. Sometimes they still have to jump on a rowboat and row away to dry terra firma. Regrettably also, the, the rising waters also seem to be a little bit too much like the rising costs of housing. Land and homes have gotten to a point where most people can't afford them. And unfortunately, I've had to watch uh, too many of my friends move away from the area, because they couldn't afford to buy a home or rent anymore. So this is the Levee Road song. Oh, the water on the Levee Road, it rose. Oh the water on the levee road, it rose Oh the water on the levee road, it rose It rose so high it put a tear in my eye Oh the water on the levee road, it rose Inch by inch the water rises slow Inch by inch the water rises slow Inch by inch it rises slow, me and my family gotta pack up and go, the water on a levee road it rose. The water rose and then it came and waves. The water rose and then it came and waves. The water rose and then it came and waves. So much came that the levee gave Oh, the water on the levee road, it rose land the water rises like the price of land we cannot afford to rent or buy we gotta tell all our neighbors goodbye oh the water on the levee road it rose water rose from below and the water fell from above Water rose from below, and water fell from above. Water rose from below, water fell from above. Could not drown out the house of love. Oh, the water on a levee road, it rose. The water rises like the price of land. The water rises like the price of land. We cannot afford to rent or buy. We're gonna have to tell our neighbors goodbye. Oh, the water on the levee road, it rose. In New Zealand, I read a magazine, something nasty crossed my eye. The earth that fed me in California was turning cracked and dry. New Zealand ferns are always green, it rains more there than it should. I looked to the cloud that was raining on me and said, go, you can do some good. Cloud stopped crying and wasting time and fly across the sky. Spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. Met a guy from San Francisco in a railway ticket line. He said the Grateful Dead was alive and well, but the weather wasn't so fine. Nobody had a garden. Nothing lived but weeds. The earth looked like some kind of feverish person who'd caught a strange disease. He said the reservoirs are empty, cattle dying too. Every tongue is reaching out to sip the morning dew. And they say the fields and valleys are turning green to brown. Let the farmers walk a dry and dusty mile in every farm in town. Clouds stop crying and wasting time and fly across the sky. And spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. I stared up to the diamond stars one cashmere night. Black velvet sky and a raging river was no other sound or sight. The Big Dipper hung up above the river and I felt that it was a shame. All this water here in California dry, I said to the dipper by name. Reach down and kiss that raging river and fly across the sky. Spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. People and the animals like to gather where water flows. A beer, some tea, or a water hole, it's there where something grows. And remember the music, water makes the rainy pool and the circle dance. The thunder of the ocean and the waterfall, the laughing creek that feeds the plants. Now the fields are green again, beauty has returned. Tragedies continue to show what we still got to learn. Can't waste away the ocean, water, air, or land. If we upset this sacred ground, we won't have any place to stand. So reach down and kiss the raging river and fly across the sky. Spread a lot of rain, sweet rain Spread a lot of rain on California I don't want to see her Spread a lot of rain, sweet rain Spread a lot of rain on California I don't want to see her die
7: Okay, after our radio labor report, which is talking about a general strike now in the U.S. by workers who want more, workers who are no longer willing to take dead-end jobs for low pay and a lot of abuse, whether implied or actual a general strike, the two words together strike terror into the hearts of the plutocrats. Then we had um, Billy Bragg singing Fascists Bound to Lose, an old Woody Guthrie song, written during World War II. And most Americans were involved in anti-fascism. In fact, people who are against fascism before World War II were labeled by American intelligence services as premature anti-fascists. It was okay to be anti-fascist after the United States got into the war on the side of the Soviet Union against Germany. Then it was good to be an anti-fascist, but soon after the war was over, all of a sudden it wasn't good anymore to be an anti-fascist. It meant you might be a communist, heavens. Fascists bound to lose by Billy Bragg, Woody Guthrie. And a couple of Charlie Morgan songs, Brother Charlie Morgan, who we lost right at the end of July, and who was the subject of a beautiful tribute, which I participated in, at his home station of KWMR in Point Reyes Station. He had the Levy Road song where he equates or suggests that the rise of the... Broken levees, the water from the broken levees is symbolic, a metaphor for the rise of the cost of living in Marin. That part of Marin. And then his California drought song, which I've always considered his masterpiece, certainly very timely now, even though we had a little rain the other night. The California Drought Song. If we don't learn how to live with nature, nature will destroy this world that we've put together. The California Drought Song. Okay, let's get on the labor beat here and see what's going on. Dying for debt relief on the Al Jazeera site. Why are New York City taxi drivers on a hunger strike? Why indeed? When Richard and Kenny Chow moved with their family to the U.S. from Taiwan in 1987, the iconic yellow taxi cabs that ferry New Yorkers from place to place were a symbol of the city and of the opportunity for a better life in their new home. the officials promoted medallions a certification necessary to operate yellow cabs as a reliable investment that paired with hard work could open the doors of prosperity it was a pitch that resonated with many immigrant workers according to new york city data 40 percent of medallion drivers are from south asia First, it was a good deal. After buying a medallion for one ten thousand in two thousand six, Richard said he was making the American dream, bringing in money and providing for my family, which by then included two children. Okay. So far, so good. His brother Kenny was so encouraged that he saved up enough for a down payment on a medallion that, for which he paid over 700000 Now, of course, the amount of money we're talking about here is a huge amount of money for most people. Okay, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But they went ahead and made the deal. The trust that shattered that trust... He says he trusted the city. It was a safe investment. But the advent of app-based ride-sharing shattered the whole trust. Work became scarcer for New York City cab drivers. Like other medallion owners, Kenny and Richard were left holding hundreds of thousands worth of debt for certifications that had plummeted in value. And working a job that drivers tell Al Jazeera pays little more than minimum wage. The New York Taxi Drivers Alliance, a union with more than 21,000 members, the average owner-driver owes $550,000 on medallions, that are now just worth over $100,000 a piece. Richard said he bought his medallion for 410,000, but he owes 400,000 in debt and his payments are 2,766. That's why Richard and other cab drivers have gathered outside New York City Hall for over a month to call for meaningful debt relief, they say is crucial for their survival. At the center of their demands is a proposal from NYTWA that would cap outstanding Madaya loan debt at $145,000 and monthly payments of $800. The city does have a $65 million debt relief program for medallion owners. But the union has blasted the scheme as nothing more than a banker bailout that's going to give $65 million directly to the banks and hedge funds that own medallion debt in exchange for a negligible reduction in the principal owed on them. And there we go again. We run into it again. The big C. Capitalism. It's got to make somebody some money. The current program also doesn't cover some people saddled with medallion debt. So there's a hunger strike. Under the mayor's plan, I don't qualify. Cobert Sancho Persat, a 26-year-old yellow cab driver who's on strike, Right now I have over $600,000 in debt that my dad, who was a driver, left when he died four years ago. My mom got sick and couldn't work, so I started driving full-time in 2016. The plight of heavily indebted drivers has already received attention from politicians such as Alexandro Ocasio-Cortez and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer they have called on Mayor Bill de Blasio to embrace the city's relief, the union's relief program proposal. It's too little, too late. De Blasio is in favor of the uh, proposed plan that puts money in the pocket of lenders. The city's current plan provides a modicum of help in restructuring loans where the owner, driver, and lender can agree to terms. But for hundreds, if not thousands of owner drivers, the gap is simply too large. There's going to be more despair, more bankruptcy, and more dreams ruined. Drivers say the mayor has not been responsive on an escalation of tactics, several of them began a hunger strike at noon on October twentieth. Richard Chow is among them, now 63 years old, sitting in a chair alongside drivers from India, South Korea, Romania, and Poland. Chow says one driver is noticeably absent, his brother Kenny, struggling with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt, Kenny Chow took his own life in 2018. I lost my brother, I had my heart broken, Richard says. While the stakes are high, drivers say that the feeling of fighting together has been invigorating. Okay, check it out. It's on Al Al Jazeera. Dying for debt relief. It's another situation where people are under a lot of a lot of pressure. Yahtzee. Okay, Yahtzee is a um, a group of locals that work in the dream factory in the uh, entertainment business. Okay. And the Yahtzee members have been on strike. Over 30,000 workers are represented by them. If approved by the membership, the deal avoids a strike that the membership had recently authorized by a margin of 98%. Early indicators suggest that the tentative agreement prevents most of the rollbacks proposed by the studios and make some marginal improvements in other areas, but stop short of some of the issues that led to the overwhelming vote to approve a strike. As the fight moves to the next phase, Yahtzee members will have to vote to ratify this deal or reject it and send their member- leadership back to the bargaining table with fundamental strike issues only weekly addressed by the TA approval of the load of the deal by highly agitated membership is anything but guaranteed low pay exploitation by streamers and inhuman working hours One member of the Editorial's Local 700 I spoke with recounted the mutual instances of working 24 hours straight. He was once told to bring a hard drive to a producer after one of these shifts. Fell asleep on the freeway and totaled his car. I called the producer and told him about what had happened. And his first question was, is the hard drive okay? He drove to the site of the accident, picked up the drive, and left me there. This type of story is as routine as it gets for many workers in Hollywood. 14-hour-plus days for entire crews on set happen regularly, sometimes in grueling weather conditions. So we'll see what happens there with the Yahtzee. And what it boils down to, the, the author of, of this, this is a organizing work website. Um, there are two, between two different ideas of union, unionism. Uh, one of them is an industrial approach, the industrial model. And the other is the craft model. So, historically, the craft model would be represented by the AFL. In the AFL, they organized people um, more narrowly among their separate crafts. So you have here, you have editors and you have writers. Uh, You have technicians, and they're all 13 different unions. The industrial model would be to organize everybody who works in that industry all together, one big union, the IWW model. Now, some labor writers say that the IWW model is... is better because it organizes all the workers together. So you have one contract for all the workers in a certain industry. Um, as someone who studied labor history, one guy writes, I'm aware that the AFL secured its future by organizing on the basis of individual crafts rather than the failed IWW model of organizing any and all workers under the same flag. Perhaps this guy missed the alternative, a union like the IWW's Local Eight, perhaps the most powerful industrial union ever to exist. On the East Coast stocks was built on the basis of racial inclusion against the segregated lily white craft unions, ILA. So we have to keep our eye on the ya- Yahtzee strike and this idea of how we're going to move forward in the future. Between the industrial model and the craft model is something to keep in mind and think about. The title of the article is The Hollywood Strike That Wasn't. And the connection is uh, case history, okay? Uh, the history of a of a movie called Rust and what happened on the set of Rust was that Alex Baldwin well-known movie star Saturday night live etc etc shot a gun uh it's a western and he was told the gun was cold. In other words, it wasn't loaded or it was loaded with blanks. But upon shooting the gun, he hit um, one of the camera people, one of the visual technicians. Uh, And the the gun was loaded. And union members on the set Six union members had walked off the set. Hours before Alex Baldwin fatally shot a cinematographer on the New Mexico set of Rust with what was called a prop gun, a half dozen camera crew workers walked off the set to protest working conditions. Which is the exact thing the Yahtzee strike was talking about. The camera operators and their assistants were frustrated by the conditions surrounding a low budget film, including complaints about long hours, long commutes and collecting their paychecks safety protocols standard in the industry including gun inspections were not strictly followed on the rust set the sources said they said at least one of the camera operators complained last weekend to a production manager about gun safety on the set Baldwin's stunt double accidentally fired two rounds Saturday after being told that the gun was cold. There should have been an investigation, said one of the crew members. There were no safety meetings. There was no assurance that it wouldn't happen again. All they wanted to do was rush, rush, rush colleague was so alarmed by the prop gun misfires he sent a text message to the union production manager. We've now had three accidental discharges. This is super unsafe. Rust Movie Production said, of course, though we were not made aware of any official complaints, we'll be conducting an internal review. So... (laughs) Who's responsible here? Uh, Cinematographer Halina Hutchins was huddled around a monitor lining up her next camera shot when she was accidentally killed. Of course, Baldwin is crushed by this. He was told the gun was not loaded, that it was cold. Filmmaking crew was lining up its camera angles and had yet to retreat to the video village, an on-set area, where the crew gathers to watch filming from a distance via a monitor. Instead, the V V camera operator was on a dolly with the monitors, checking out potential shots. Associated Press reported that Baldwin was handed a loaded weapon by an assistant director who indicated it was safe to use. The person in charge of overseeing the gun props, known as the armorer, could not be reached for comment. Okay, also, the director was wounded. Labor trouble has been brewing for years, for days, on the dusty set at the Bonanza Creek Ranch near Santa Fe. Shooting began on October 6th, and members of the low-budget film said they had been promised the production would pay for their hotel rooms in Santa Fe. Once filming began, however, they were told they instead would be required to make a 50-mile drive from Albuquerque each day, rather than stay overnight in nearby Santa Fe. The rankled crew members were worried that they might have an accident after spending 12 to 13-mile hours on the set. Hutchins had been advocating for safer conditions and was tearful when the camera crew left. (sighs) Several non-union crew members showed up to replace them. One of the producers ordered the union members to leave the set and threatened to call security to remove them if they didn't leave. Corners were being cut and they brought in non-union people so they could continue shooting. So there it is. (laughs) There what is, Bill? People trying to save money by bringing in a scab crew. And look what happens. Accidents happen. Three, Three live shots. The assistant director did not know the prop gun was loaded with live rounds. Okay. Shooting occurred about six hours after the Union camera crew left. Okay, well, I, that's what happens, I guess, when you cut corners, huh? And you try to do things on the cheap. A little after 11 now, let's listen to some uh, kind of blue.
15: long ago.
16: Let you come from
3: me
17: your arms around me, I get a feeling that's so hard to bear, you give me fever, when you kiss me, fever, when you hold me tight. We Feel me, feel You give me fever When you kiss me Fever when you hold me tight
5: Come up and do a song Mr. Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. Come on, Tommy. Tommy also makes great acoustic records in the, name of the Night Watchman. Let's try it. Patrol choppers coming up over the ridge, hot soup on a campfire under the bridge, shelter lines stretching around the corner. Welcome to the new world order, families sleeping in their cars in the southwest. Hitting nobody about where it goes. I'm sitting down here in the campfire light. Searching for the ghost to talk. Yeah.
18: the prayer book out of his sleeping bag. Lights up a button, takes a drag, waiting for when the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In a cardboard box deep the underpass, you got a one-way ticket to the promised land. bro.
5: Tom said Mama, wherever there's a cop Beating a guy Wherever Hungry and bone Baby cry Where there's a fight Against some blood and hatred in the air
18: Look for me, Mom I'll be there Wherever somebody's Fighting for a place to stand decent job or a helping hand, wherever somebody's struggling to be free, look in their eyes, my, you'll see me.
7: Okay, well, we're back after that. <clears throat> after our talk, after our review of what happened at, on the movie set, because they wouldn't honor their agreements with their union technicians, we heard Brittany Howard, and Brittany Howard singing a beautiful song called I Want to Be High. I just want to be high with you. Recommended to me by Brother Earl Coleman. Someone else we lost on the 6th of October. A very good friend for 50 years. God love him. Uh, R.I.P. Earl. And Little Willie John with Fever. Another song that suggests Brother Charlie. He loved to play that song and really rocked it. The Little Willie John version, although the uh, Peggy Lee version is just as, almost as good in my mind. And uh, we had the Ballad of Tom Jode played by Bruce Springsteen and Tom Morello. Tom Morello sort of went crazy on his guitar there. Um, Tom Jode, the character from John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, about a family uh, hunting for a safe haven, a place where they could live and relax and have good lives. We're still looking for it. Tom Jode is still looking for it. Okay. Labor History in Two. What happened this day and two days hence, two days before, on Radio Labor? In Labor History.
19: History in Two. On this day in Labor History, the year was 1995. That was the day that the AFL CIO convention convened in New York City. At the convention, John Sweeney was elected president of the Federation. It was the first contested election for president in AFL-CIO history. He ran with a slate of labor leaders including Rich Trumka, who called themselves the New Voice slate. Sweeney was president of the Service Employees International Union. He was a New Yorker born in the Bronx. He started his career in labor working for the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, then moving to SEIU as a union rep. He represented SEIU Local 32B in New York City during two strikes of apartment maintenance workers during the 1970s. In 1980, he was elected president of the International SEIU, a post he held for 15 years. Membership in SEIU nearly doubled from 625,000 to 1.1 million under his leadership. Sweeney gave a powerful speech for his candidacy at the convention. He said, "Quote: Workers look at their paychecks, the political system, and the public debate, and wonder why nobody is speaking for me. Then, in fear and frustration, they look for leadership to the Rush Limbaughs who seek scapegoats rather than solutions for problems of stagnant wages, corporate greed, and a fractured." Society. He pledged that under his leadership, the AFL-CIO would move to commit more resources to organizing these workers. When he won election, Sweeney held good to his campaign promise. He instituted a new initiative, the Union Summer Program, to involve college students in the labor movement. He expanded organizing efforts in the South and Southwest. John Sweeney served five terms as president of the AFL-CIO. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day that the bank robber known as Pretty Boy Floyd was gunned down by federal agents in Ohio. He was born Charles Arthur Floyd in 1904 in Georgia. His family moved to Oklahoma when he was a boy. Like many Oklahomans during this era, he fell on hard economic times. Floyd turned to crime. He did a four-year stretch in a Missouri prison for payroll robbery. When he got out, he tried to get a job in the Oklahoma oil fields. Unable to find work, Floyd took up bank robbing. He robbed banks in Kentucky, Ohio, and Missouri. He got caught and convicted in Ohio, but escaped on his train trip to prison. He made his way back to Oklahoma. There he became a folk hero. Locals called him the Robin Hood of the Cookson Hills. Legend had it that Floyd destroyed mortgage papers when he robbed banks, winning him friends among farmers reeling from the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Floyd became a national fugitive when he was accused of killing federal agents in Kansas City. He denied he was ever involved in the killings. J. Edgar Hoover, head of the U.S. Bureau of Investigation, named Floyd public enemy number one. Finally, the law caught up with Floyd in an Ohio cornfield. His body was returned to Oklahoma, where as many as 40,000 came to his funeral. Woody Guthrie
11: remembered Floyd in song. But many a starving farmer, the same old story told. How the outlaw paid their mortgage and saved their little home. Like what you hear? Check out
19: more at laborhistoryin2.com.
11: Others tell you about a stranger that come to beg a meal. Underneath his napkin left a thousand dollar bill.
19: I'm Rick Smith and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 2001. That was the day that Thomas Morris Jr. died from breathing in anthrax. A week earlier, he had been exposed to the deadly poison when an envelope containing the powdery substance was opened at the mail Distribution Center where he worked. Thomas Morris was a member of the American Postal Workers Union. His union brother, Joseph Kersin, died two days later. Both men worked at the U.S. Postal Service Brentwood Processing and Distribution Center in Washington, D.C. The poisoned letters were addressed to Senators Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy. More postal workers at a distribution center in New Jersey Jersey also fell ill from exposure to anthrax poisoned mail. In total, 22 people were sickened by anthrax that fall from letters addressed to politicians and news outlets. In addition to those injured, five people died, including a seven-month-old infant who was visiting NBC News in New York City with his mother who worked there. Coming the month after the September 11th attacks, the anthrax poisoning sent another wave of fear of terrorism throughout the United States. The brand Wood Distribution Center was closed down for decontamination until December 2003. When it reopened, the facility was renamed for the two fallen postal workers. The next year, Senator Joe Lieberman gave an address to the APWU. He said, quote, the postal workers who were exposed to anthrax and still got the mail out and kept our system running. They are proud union members. I know I'll never forget that and America won't forget that. All of you at the APWU you deserve our respect and our support. One person suspected of the poisonings committed suicide, and the case was closed. No one was ever convicted of the crimes. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Labor in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. <laughs> on this day in labor history, the year was 1926. That was the day that one of the great labor leaders in U.S. history, Eugene V. Debs, died in Elmhurst, Illinois. In 1894, Debs gained national attention when his American Railway Union launched a boycott in support of the striking workers of the Pullman Palace Car Company. The strike and the boycott were crushed by federal troops and a federal court. Debs served six months in jail for his role in the boycott. Later, Debs would again go to jail for standing up for his beliefs. He was convicted for speaking out against U.S. involvement in World War I. He was among the founders of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, in 1905. He ran as a socialist for president of the United States five times, receiving nearly one million votes running his campaign from a prison cell in 1920. In 1891, Debs wrote an article for the Locomotive Fireman's magazine titled The Unity of Labor. His words stand as an eloquent case for worker solidarity. Debs wrote, quote, if working men were united in sympathetic bonds, If a bricklayer could comprehend the fact that he is dependent on the hod carrier. If the locomotive engineer could grasp the fact that he is dependent on the locomotive fireman. The interdependence of labor would at once constitute a bond of union. A chain whose link, forged and fashioned to hold working men in harmonious alliance, would girt them with a defense in every time of trouble and resist invasion, though assailed by all the plutocrats that ever cursed the earth. Deb spent his life trying to bring about this harmonious alliance of working people and standing up for the causes of peace and justice. For more information, go to LaborHistoryIn2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at LaborHistoryIn2.
7: How about this one from Francesca Fiorentini, invest in your mom.
2: I've been obsessed with belts for a long time. I wear a belt Uh. every day.
20: We've heard a lot in the debate around Build Back Better, how much the plan will cost. The media is obsessed with 3.5 trillion or 1.5 trillion or 2.1 trillion or whatever. How much would it cost for us not to provide for paid leave for people that need to take care of a newborn or a a sick family member? Do we have those numbers? And do you think it's a failure of messaging that those aren't more widely known?
21: It would cost, it is already costing us because we're not going to have a healthy economy unless everybody uh, can go to work and half of our population or more than half of our population are women and they're constrained based on the fact that when they have a a child when they have to take sick leave to take a child to a doctor they will lose their job so it's costing us billions of dollars there are figures on on that how many billions of dollars we're losing each year based on the fact that we do not have a healthy workforce. We used to be, 30 years ago, we used to be number six. When you take a look at uh, women's labor force participation rates, Mm -hmm. now we're back to number 36. So, the United States in the past 20 years, when it comes to women and the economy, has gone backwards. And you know, the one thing about paid leave that's very important, it is not just women and families who would benefit from that. And I think that's a great point that you're bringing up here our entire economy would be healthier. Our GDP would be much uh, higher if we had a healthier workforce. We just can't rely on only half of our population in order to build a a healthy workforce. We need to include women in that.
12: Yeah, I mean, I've I've said this before, it's like in in what, for all the conservatives who are excited that women are being forced out of the workforce to raise kids because literally nobody else will, like, how how do you expect people to survive? How do you, you know, how is the economy somehow so good that you can survive on one income? You can't. Or no income if you're a single mom, mm-hmm. right? Like, you can't, there's, there's no way. So, and you talk about the politics behind, this, especially around Build Back Better. Joe Manchin is essentially saying this. He is holding the entire country hostage uh, by saying that you have to pick either it's paid leave, child tax credits, or uh, universal childcare. So this was from Axios not so long ago. He said, uh, Joe Manchin is telling colleagues that progressives need to pick just one of Biden's three signature policies for helping working families and disregard the other two, uh, people familiar with the matter, tell Axios. um, By forcing progressives to choose among an expanding child tax credit, paid family medical leave or subsidies for childcare, Manchin is complicating any potential deal but also signaling his willingness to negotiate. I don't know about that last part, Axios, but that was cute. Um, AOC responded, of course, to this, saying, ah, yes, the conservative Dem position. You can either feed your kid, recover from your C-section, or have childcare so you can go to work, but not all three. All three makes you entitled and lazy. But fossil fuel money, keep the pharma prices high, and not taxing Wall Street are, quote, non-negotiable. So this is the thing with capitalism, right? It is, you know, you, you make... You basically privatize all the loss, right? But you make... Uh, I can't remember the saying fuck it but basically like you you're you're relying on the workforce right you want a healthy workforce you make tons and tons of profit and then any kind of you know oh you need health care you need family care your parent your parents or your husband are sick no 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 you take care of that all by yourself and then we're seeing that as sort of the social safety net's been chipped away at Mm
20: -hmm. Yeah, you know, I wanted to, oh, sorry. I, I just wanted to jump in real quick, but there's also been a conservative and centrist freakout about a drop in birth rates. And it's sort of like, what do people expect? Like people yeah. are delaying <laughs> child care and or childbirth if they are going to have kids at all until much later in life. So they're having fewer children. And part of that isn't I, I have no problem with people choosing not to have children because that's what they want. But it really seems like the system is making the decision for people, and a lot of people are waiting so long that it's hard for them to conceive without the help of IVF or other medical intervention. Right. I wonder like, what your thoughts are, Simona, on how this kind of fits into the whole idea of giving people more of a choice in how they form their families.
21: You're absolutely right. You're spot on on this. And AOC is spot on on this. It should be your choice to have a child, right? Whether we're talking about economic justice or reproductive justice, this is about Joe Manchin called this, calls uh, these programs entitlement. He's uh, afraid that we're going to uh, create an entitlement society. But, you know, I call this basic mm-hmm. dignity. Let's give dignity to women to make sure that they can make these choices for themselves. Let's make sure that we can take care of children. And let's um, not make having a family a leading cause of poverty in this country, because Mm. it is. As it stands, having a child is a leading cause of poverty. And it's also the best indicator that at one point in your life, you're going to be filing for bankruptcy. And you know, this is an issue. These family policies are issues where Democrats and Republicans on both sides of the aisle could actually come together because providing childcare, for example, free childcare, would be one of the most effective anti-poverty measures that we could institute in the United States, and that's a progressive issue. It is also the best way to reduce abortion rates. Okay. Mm. So I uh, I mean the data is there, but they keep fighting because uh they are making this about partisanship and not about American families.
12: Yes. Yes. I mean, and that's so interesting. Like, you know, I feel like, uh, uh, someone who gets lost often in, in the, like, anti-choice, you know, bullshit line is, is mothers. Is mothers who are Mm -hmm. already have kids who cannot afford to have more children. Unless, you know, there are more support, there's more support for parents. You want you uni- you want more ki- kids? You want people to just keep their babies? Well, then support them. What's going on, Frantifa? If you haven't already, subscribe to this channel right now. Hit that button. And also-
7: okay, that was uh, Francesca Fiorentini in the habituation room. Uh, having kids, forced motherhood, huh? People who can't afford it making people have babies, where all you have to do is provide free childcare. Women would be happy to have babies. Hmm? A lot of them would. It's a, an economic, an economic uh, decision. Okay. It's just about time for us to get out of here and uh, leave you to the tender mercies of uh, flat black plastic. They're
4: making a kind of a ride here. This is the B
7: signing off. Done another show. Labor and love. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table, that is where you work. You're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. We have
4: been able to make anything that we want to make and do anything we want to do. Have created miracles. But it don't make sense when we can't make peace. You know, you made everything else. Wise men, great men, from every nation in the world, all the countries in the world. Have all kinds of conventions and festivals. Spend all the money. Suppose you had to spend half as much money on trying to make peace.
22: of swimming through a sea of podcast are ye on a raft without a pattern well gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship
6: Coming soon, the sixth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Six venues. 24 shows, seven days, 75 comics from all over the United States at amazing local venues. Haciento, Atlas Cafe, El Rio, Milk Bar, OMG, and the bar? On Dolores, special headliner shows at El Rio, Thursday night, 7 and 9 o'clock, featuring Scott Capuro, headliner, amazing comedian. Also, Andy Iwancio out of Seattle, here for the 6th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. All tickets are $10, except the headlining show, which are $20. You can find all of the shows on Mutiny Radio's Eventbrite. Reserve them now. And don't miss out, 2021, the 6th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival.
23: Black Block, a novel about protest from Sanjuro, a sample. The walk from Union Square to the bar is a long way for a drink so you want a few stopovers. You get warmed up at Lefty Duels, an old-time tavern with memorabilia and a menu from another century. Then a market street dive to rub elbows with the hoy paloi. Next is a Folsom Leather Bar. The dark, goth soundtrack is a refreshing change from the usual jukebox anthems, but you must avert your eyes lest you observe gentlefolk in flagrante. That means fucking. Tonight, none of these places are open unless looters have broken in. The city is shut down because of the riots. Thank you. Find me at sandrowriter.com, and Black Block is on Amazon.
22: Well, if you go to joke workshop there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it Daryl, are you serious i can get people to listen to my jokes and they'll even say nice things dude you before they tell you how to get improved no
14: it's
22: joe Cray-
0: That song is called Acid and Fapping.
23: Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.f and Chester Cashcock here and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Randy well don't even worry, don't fret at all.
2: I was just leaving the theater. Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active labs. which in turn... As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. Imagine orange gold spurting out from school playgrounds on the Great Plains and illuminating the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the Fourth of July. Magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky. Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. If you want global lava markets to continue to be dominated by terrorist regimes like Iceland, Chile, and the Philippines, vote for my opponent, who sits in their back pocket as comfortably as Pahoehoe on the slopes of Kilauea. If you want the United States to stay competitive in the era of peak lava and beyond, then take a chance on the Chancellor.
11: All right, Carl, here's my new theme song. W
18: A F L M O. Y T flip 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 flip.
0: Let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube.